Thank you, guys. If <clears throat> you have to bear with my voice tonight, see how long I make it here. Um, if you don't have a New Testament or a Bible, we've got some extras in the back. Hold your hand up, and Trish will bring you one. How many do we need? One? One, one or two? Okay. Hey, Trish, if you can hear that, we need one or two New Testaments. All right. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Thank you. All right. Forgive me for my uh, <clears throat> drinking up here tonight. I'll be doing that quite a bit, I think. All right. I can endure the 104 fever. It's just the cough that's going to be bothering me. <laughs> just kidding. All right. Well, welcome to The Point. We're walking through a series <clears throat> for a few weeks on apologetics. And then what I'm going to do once we do that is I'm going to kind of <clears throat> lead it right into a uh, presentation of real practical kind of a systematic theology. You know, there's so many people who have always wanted to go to seminary or study and really learn systematic theology. So we're going to learn um, just kind of the basic fundamental doctrines and theologies of our faith and how it's really relevant and practical in our day-to-day lives. So that's kind of where we're headed with this. Um, I'll be making notes for you guys. We'll have lots of notes. You guys will be taking a lot of, a lot of notes yourself, I hope, and we'll be learning a lot along the way. But tonight, what I want to do is I want to talk about the question, uh, does God exist, and how can one know if God exists? Recently, there's an author who is one of the most popular <clears throat> biologists in the world today. He's at Oxford University. His name is Richard Dawkins. He's written a number of books, popular books. One's called The Blind Watchmaker. Another one's called The Selfish Gene, which is his most popular book. He's an ardent atheist and evolutionist who sees religion as a virus uh, that needs to be uh, basically rid of by humanity. That for whatever reason, nature and evolution allowed religion to become a part of our evolutionary heritage for certain purposes, but now it's time for us to stamp it out. And the reason is because of all the violence and the superstition that goes with religion. And he's written a new book that uh, he, and he calls The God Delusion. The guy doesn't really pull many punches here. He's pretty straightforward. And just to let you know that he's not some ivory tower guy, this guy has been on Comedy Central. He's been on uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. He's been on The Stephen Colbert Show. Uh, this guy is getting lots of press in the popular media. And it's not just him. It's several guys. Guys like Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and some of these guys who are really becoming <clears throat> what some have called uh, evangelistic atheists. That they want to take their atheism and they want to start educating people as to why belief in God is completely absurd and irrational. So uh, it is a good idea for us, number one, to understand where they're coming from and to make sense of this idea for ourselves as believers. And so I want to spend a little bit of time with you uh, doing tonight. In Romans chapter 1, Paul makes, <clears throat> says something about belief in God that is pretty strong here. Notice what he says here beginning in verse uh, 18. Paul says, the wrath of God <clears throat> is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So essentially, do you see what Paul is saying? People who deny the existence of God, they are are suppressing the truth. Literally, they are holding down or holding under that which is natural and instinctive to the human condition. And they are without excuse because God has made it known within them and God has allowed them to see what has been made so that man now is left with no excuses. So when Richard Dawkins writes a book like this, he will stand before God someday without any excuses. He can throw his 340 pages before God and say, read my arguments. And God will say, you are without excuse. For I've made it known within you, and I've made it known all around you. But what does Paul mean by that? That he's made it known within us, and he's made it known through what has been made, the creation. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time with you and and talk about this. And the way I want to do that is I want to talk about, I want to present the case for atheism, if I may, in a church. I want to present their case. And then I want to go ahead and kind of dismantle each point as we go along. And rather than me set it up and tell you what they believe, I want to use Dawkins' own book so that we don't have to worry about creating what philosophers call a straw man where you build a false argument, then you tear it down and you go, ha-ha, see, I tore that argument down when that wasn't the argument in the first place, okay? So we're going to look at Dawkins' own words and his own book here for a little bit tonight. Now, one of the things that he says is he says one of the main reasons we sh- no one should believe in God and that it's irrational is because the only things you and I should believe in are those things that are observable, those things that are testable, and those things are what scientists call empirical. Okay, you all with me? Those things that can be tested. All right? Those are the only things that are rational to believe in. Anything else is irrational, okay? Now, he says that, and I want you to notice something here. He's talking about an entire branch of science known as SETI uh, projects, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Have you all heard of those projects? We've got big radio telescopes all around the world, and what are we doing with those telescopes? We're trying to, we've sent messages out, and we're trying to receive responses back, right? So the question is this. What would you have to hear in a radio telescope in order for you to know that it's intelligence that's the source? In other words, is intelligence detectable? You all understand the question? Is intelligence detectable? What would I have to hear from space to know this It's from an intelligent source, and it's not just some random noise from space. Most of the stuff that you hear in these telescopes sounds like this. It's just static. And what they're doing is they're listening for patterns. Now, how many of you saw the movie Contact several years ago with Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey? Remember that movie? Okay. Well, he agrees with what it was in that movie that they used 
to detect intelligence in space. Do you remember what it was? What it was from space that came in? What was it? It was noise, but it came in a particular sequence. What was it? Prime numbers. He says, prime numbers are often mentioned as the recipe of choice, meaning to prove that it came from intelligence. Since it is difficult to think of a purely physical process that could generate them. Right? That's true. So remember in the movie, these pulsating beats came in, remember? And they came in in prime order. 1, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, 23. I failed that test, by the way, in junior high in prime numbers, but I know them now. But those pulses from space came in prime sequences. Now, what if it just came one time and you had one pulse? And that's it. Would that prove that there's intelligence in space? No. What if you had two pulses and it was in the prime numbers one and three? Would that prove? Would that do it? No. What if it was all the way to five? No. How about three, five, and then seven pulses? Maybe. Well, what if it was all the way to 101? Well, that's what it was in the movie, remember? And sure enough, when they saw that, they said, there's no physical process in nature that can account for this sequence of information coming uh, for our telescopes to receive. So look what else he says. He says, how should we respond if suddenly we receive these prime numbers from space? A pardonable reaction would be something akin to worship for any civilization capable of broadcasting a signal over such an immense distance is likely to be greatly superior to ours. Even if that civilization is not more advanced than ours at the time of transmission, the enormous distance between us entitles us to calculate that they must be millennia ahead of us by the time the message reaches us. So what does he say you should do? If we got these messages from space, what should be our appropriate response to these people? Worship, right? Because they're more advanced. Now, I like what he says there because if we got any kind of information outside of ourselves, worship should be the response, right? But look what he says here. Whether we ever get to know about them or not, there are very probably alien civilizations that are superhuman to the point of being godlike in ways that exceed anything a theologian could possibly imagine. What? I mean, here's a guy, what was his test for knowledge? Before you can say that you know anything, what's the test? It's got to be empirical. It's got to be testable. It's got to be observable, right? And yet he goes on to say... Whether or not we ever get to know about them or not, meaning what? Whether there's any empirical evidence or not, there are very probably alien civilizations that are superhuman. Isn't that a bit of a conflict with what his own premise is? You see? So Dawkins, right out of the chute, has a problem here. So here's the question. Dawkins rightly says, that intelligence can be detectable. 
and it's detectable by looking at it and determining if the information that you see can be explained by nature alone. Okay, y'all with me? <clears throat> For instance, a classic example is this. Some of you have heard me use this illustration before. If you were walking down a ravine, okay, and you saw a stone in a river, and the water had been running over the stone, and it's real smooth and pretty, and somebody said to you, how did that stone get so smooth and pretty? Immediately you would say, simple. That's the process of what? Erosion. That erosion nature can explain that. But if you went a little farther down that ravine and you looked up and you see this huge stone mountain with four faces chiseled in faces of presidents of the United States, you would never look at that and immediately infer that erosion is an amazing thing, would you? You would never say, that is amazing what the wind and the waves and the birds have done flying into that mountain. You would immediately know just by looking at that, that intelligence is the source of Mount Rushmore. Now, why is that? It's because <clears throat> intelligent causes are detectable through the nature of that which is seen. So what is it about Mount Rushmore that shows you that intelligence produced it? Well, number one, it's got symmetry, right? Eyes are equidistant from the nose, right? The mouths are equidistant from the nose. There's symmetry. There's dimensionality. There's complexity. There's mathematical precision, right? And you look at that and you say, no way nature could have done that. So we do that all the time. Why is it that when you <clears throat> dig in your backyard and you find an arrowhead, you don't think it's just some random piece of petrified wood. You know that that is an Indian arrowhead that was used for a purpose. Was well, because the arrowhead, even if you've never seen an arrowhead before, you know it was designed by intelligence because of the nature of the thing itself. Okay? Y'all with me so far? So the question now is, do these things exist in the world and in the universe? Well, here's what Dawkins says. Dawkins goes on, and he says in a very, very good way that when you look at the world, it looks amazingly designed. In fact, so much so that he even says right here, he says, but the spontaneous arising by chance of the first molecules strikes many as improbable. Maybe it is even very, very improbable. So he acknowledges that life in the world is very, very improbable because of the enormous complexity in the information in life. And he goes on and he says this, The origin of life is a flourishing, if speculative, subject for research. In other words, scientists are trying to understand how did life begin in the world? The expertise required for it is chemistry, and that's not my expertise. I watch from the sidelines with engaged curiosity, and I shall not be surprised if, listen to this, within the next few years, chemists report that they have successfully midwiped a new origin of life in the laboratory. So he thinks that if scientists somehow create life in the laboratory, that's proven what? That you don't need intelligence. No, just the opposite. What's it proven? 
it's proven that it has taken uh, about a century of countless man hours and laboratory hours and money for man to come up with the simplest form of life. No, in fact, if scientists do erect life in a laboratory, what does that prove? It proves that it requires an enormous amount of intelligence and time and effort to do that. If it's taken scientists that long with the precision and the sophistication that they have, why would you think nature all by itself with all of the destructive elements that are embedded in nature would do it? See? I think Dawkins shoots himself in the foot right here. He's trying to explain the origin of life apart from intelligence, but here he's using intelligence to account for it. Look what else he says here. He says, Nevertheless, it hasn't happened yet, and it still is possible to maintain that the probability of it happening is, and always was, exceedingly low, although it did happen once, the origin of life. Just as we did with the Goldilocks orbits. Now, here's, here's what the Goldilocks orbits are. Scientists say that the Earth is in what they call the Goldilocks zone. You guys know what that is? Remember Goldilocks? What was wrong with the first porridge that she ate? It's too hot. What was wrong with the second porridge that she ate? It's too cold. Well, what about the third one? It's just right. Well, scientists say that the Earth is in the Goldilocks zone in our Milky Way galaxy because if the Earth was any farther away from the Sun or even from Jupiter or any other major planets, it would be too cold. But if we were any closer, it would be too hot. But we are in just the right spot, so we are in the Goldilocks zone because it is just right. And in fact, our positioning is just right that Jupiter, in fact, this is a fascinating um, note for you guys, Jupiter, as big as Jupiter is, you know what one of Jupiter's biggest function is for the Earth? Jupiter has been the interceptor for major asteroids and meteors that would have crashed into the Earth, and Jupiter takes the hits. Did you know that? Jupiter and Saturn both actually take the hits for meteors and asteroids that had they missed those planets, scientists knew that they would have directly hit the Earth. So we are perfectly positioned. we got our linebackers, man. We are perfectly positioned here. We are in the Goldilocks zone. Our tilt's just right. Our atmospheres are just right. Chemical compositions are just right. Just enough nitrogen. Just enough oxygen. Just enough plant life to feed oxygen into the system. Just enough human life to reproduce carbon dioxide to let plant life exist. It's just a perfect symbiotic relationship. So he says, just as we did with the Goldilocks orbits, we can make the point that however improbable the origin of life might be, we know what happened on the earth because we're here. What kind of an argument is that? The reason I know that life began on the earth without any kind of intelligence about God is because why? It's because we're here. I mean, how would that wash if that was my argument for the existence of God? The reason I believe in God is because I'm here. That wouldn't... That wouldn't fly anywhere. And yet here's this Oxford-educated biologist 
who's making this argument that because we're here asking the question, natural law and evolution must have led us to this point. Well, it's not a great book so far. I can't believe I paid 27 bucks for it. Kind of, I got my receipt. But that's not real ethical, is it? I can't take it back, especially since I wrote in it. Well, let me show you something else. On page 228, now sometimes I'm going to do this with you guys. I'm going to pick up books that are recently released, and we're just going to do critical evaluations together and help us to think through them together in light of Scripture, okay? This happens to be one of them because Dawkins, believe it or not, really is becoming very influential. He and a whole group of guys. So I want you to at least be familiar with who this guy is. One of the other reasons that Dawkins denies any need for believing in God is because he says you don't need to believe in God to be good. Now, I would agree with that, wouldn't you? To be good, I don't have to believe in God. In other words, surely there's people who don't believe in God that, in one sense, humanly speaking, are good people. They're not out running around killing and robbing people, right? So you can be, relatively speaking, a good person. So I don't dispute what he's saying there. But look what he says here. He tells a story by a guy named Steven Pinker. Steven Pinker is a, um, a scientist who's also an atheist, and he wrote in his book, The Blank Slate, he tells this story. And I want you to critique this with me. Listen to this story. Pinker says, As a young teenager in proudly peaceable Canada during the romantic 1960s, I was a true believer in Bakunin's anarchism. I laughed off my parents' argument that if the government ever laid down its arms, uh, everything would break loose all over the city. Our competing predictions were put to the test at 8 a.m. on October 17, 1969, when the Montreal police went on strike. By 11.20 a.m., the first bank was robbed. By noon, most downtown stores had closed because of looting. Within a few more hours, Taxi drivers burned down the garage of a limousine service that competed with them for airport customers. A rooftop sniper killed a provincial police officer. Rioters broke into several hotels and restaurants, and a doctor slew a burglar in his suburban home. By the end of the day, six banks had been robbed, a hundred shops had been looted, twelve fires had been set, forty carloads of storefront glass had been broken, and $3 million in property damage had been inflicted in 1969, by the way, before city authorities had to call in the army and, of course, the Mounties to restore order. This decisive empirical test left my politics in tatters. Now listen to what Dawkins says about this story. Perhaps I, too, am a Pollyanna to believe that people would remain good when unobserved and unpoliced by God. On the other hand, the majority of the population of Montreal presumably believed in God. Why didn't the fear of God restrain them when earthly policemen were temporarily removed from the scene? Wasn't the Montreal strike a pretty good natural experiment to test the hypothesis that belief in God makes us good? Now, if we were to have an open discussion on this argument of his, you would surely see the error of his argument here. Number one, his argument is that those people that were looting, first of all, how he would know this, I have no idea, 
were God-fearing people. Now, I am biased. I'll admit that. I'm biased. But I have a hard time thinking that a bunch of people coming out of a 7 a.m. Bible study in Montreal, hearing that the Montreal police just went on strike, would suddenly pitch their Bibles in their back seats and begin looting the city. That's very difficult for me to believe, to think that those people whose faith is a substantive reality in their life, not a nominal reality, a substantive reality, that the love for God and the reverence for God is a reality in their life, I have a hard time believing that those are the people who would have looted the city. Maybe I'm wrong, but something tells me that I have a pretty safe instinct to think that those people that did that were nominal people who nominally were Protestants or Catholics, who nominally went to church, who God didn't have any real serious vitality in their life. Would you agree? Hard for me to believe. Yet what Dawkins does with just the turn of a pen is to say Montreal is a God-fearing city. Montreal had a strike. People looted. God-fearing people looted. Nice argument. But it breaks down because he doesn't distinguish the difference between a substantial faith and a nominal faith. You see? And that's one of the problems with Dawkins' understanding here of faith is he thinks if I just believe in God, that therefore I'm going to fear God and I'm going to love God. And that's not what we say. Why is it that we believe in God on the basis of morality? We believe in God on the basis of morality not because... You can't be good if you don't believe in God. But if there is no God, then there is no basis or standard for morality. That's the distinction. Doug Guyvett, the Christian philosopher, put it like this. To say that something is evil or to say that something is wrong is to say that there's a way things ought not to be. Right? But to say that there's a way things ought not to be is to say that there's a way things, what, ought to be. But to say that there's a way things ought to be, is to say that there is a standard by which I determine the way things ought to be. But to say that there is a standard, is to say that there is a standard giver that says the way things ought to be. You see? So the very fact that Dawkins even recognizes that things like looting and stealing and murder are wrong. Because isn't that what he was saying? He's appalled. The Montreal police go on strike. Look at these things that happened. These things are wrong. They're evils. The very fact that he even recognizes those things as evil and wrongs means that Dawkins himself has a standard by which he's judging these things. So it's the classic moral argument. Some of you have heard the story. It's one of my favorite ones. <clears throat> Christian philosopher in the Northeast is teaching a class, and he tells his students in his classroom that their entire grade that semester is based on one paper. So they've got to spend all semester researching one philosophical question. Well, there was a kid in the class that was an agnostic, and he, he decides to write a paper on why moral absolutes don't exist and why all ethics are relative. So he spends the whole semester and he writes this paper. And the professor said it was a really good paper, actually. About 30 pages long, footnoted. 
The kid turns the paper in. Next class period. Professor comes back. He turns back one paper, and it's to this kid. And he hands it back to the kid. And on the front of the paper, it says, F. I do not like blue folders. The kid couldn't believe it. He's beside himself. He goes to the professor after class and he says, What? You gave me an F for not liking blue folders? And the prof says, You know, I've always liked green and I've always liked red, but I've never liked blue. And the kid says, You can't do that. That's not fair. The professor says, Excuse me? He says, could you tell me what you were arguing in your paper? He says, yeah, I was arguing that moral absolutes don't exist, that all things are relative, individuals determine ethics and morality. And the prophet said, exactly. I don't like blue. You get an F. The kid says, that's not right. You can't do that. And the prophet says, whoa, whoa. You've got to quit using my language. You keep saying words like fair and right. When you use those words, you're assuming some standard that you're judging me by, but you just said that you can't do that. And the kid quickly realized that just because you can write a 30-page paper dismissing absolute ethics, to live by that is impossible. You can say ethics is relative all day long to your wallet stolen, right? or till your car is hit, or until something happens and you realize, boy, this is wrong. I remember Rudolph Giuliani, one of the greatest speeches that I've ever heard anyone give was before the United Nations as the mayor after 911. I don't know if you guys ever saw that speech. It was phenomenal. I think he was the first mayor to ever address the United Nations. And in one part of the speech, You could see he was so moved with passion over what just happened. And he looks to all the representatives of those nations, and he says, he said, what happened on September 11th was evil. He used the E word. Evil. And all of a sudden, the United Nations stood up and applauded Rudolph Giuliani. I couldn't believe it. The entire world taking a stand against evil, a standard. Now, I doubt very seriously that would happen today, unfortunately. But see, there's certain things, aren't there, that we realize is evil. Some groups in America who are very anti-religion, anti-traditionalism, anti-things, when they looked at the abuse of women in Afghanistan, remember? The evils that the Taliban was doing to those women were in the burqas and executing them in public. Do you remember what we wanted? We wanted to go over there and deliver those women from the oppression that they were suffering from because it was the right thing to do. Well, what happened to that's a whole other culture? Let that culture do the things they want to do. We couldn't do that. When we saw the way they were being treated over there, There was virtually a consensus that we're going in and we're overturning an oppressive government that was executing women for the most ridiculous things in that culture. See, that's the moral argument. Dawkins believes in morality. He just can't justify it. See? 
me show you one more thing he says here. <clears throat> and my voice is about to give out. He says, when he's talking about the origins of religion, he says, religion, one of the purposes of religion was that we were projecting a belief in God in order to help us survive through, through such a violent natural world, right? Lightning storms and all kinds of things. And so as primitive people, we kind of created this belief in God to help sustain us, to help us survive. Paul Vitz, the psychologist at NYU, he wrote a fascinating book. Paul Vitz was an atheist and became a Christian in the psychology department at NYU of all places. And he wrote a book called Faith of the Fatherless. And what he does is he takes that view that Dawkins talks about, which is actually Freud's view, and he changes it, inverts it. And what he did was this. It was fascinating. He did a biographical sketch of the most famous atheists of the last 300 years, and he looked at all of their relationships with their fathers. Guys like Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Sigmund Freud, just took these big-name atheists throughout the last 300 years, and he found that there was a common element in every one of them, without exception, and that is every one of them had a defective relationship with their fathers. They were either beaten, abandoned, abused, rejected. Their fathers were hyper-passive. Um, something happened where he was able to go back into their own writings where they referenced their fathers, and they felt tremendous shame, disrespect, or hatred towards their fathers. And as a result, you see that in every one of them, it came out in their very philosophical views of who God was. And he says, actually, rather than God being a projection of us creating God, atheists actually project that there's no God because they had a defective father in their lives. You guys see his argument there? Fascinating. If you guys want a really interesting book to pick up, it's called Faith of the Fatherless by Paul Vitz, V-I-T-Z. An excellent book to kind of walk through and to look through. But do you see why Paul says that belief in God, God has made it clearly seen? It's because when you look at nature, when you look at life, when you look at the origin of life, when you look at the universe, these things are so basic and common sense that to try to account for these things by nature alone makes no sense. In fact, that was my last point. If you look at Dawkins' explanation for where did the universe come from, why did this universe produce the life that's in it, Dawkins' argument is, he says that um, what if the, the theory that m there's an infinite number of universes that exist and ours is one of an infinite number, then eventually one of them would have to sustain life. But what's the problem with that view? How could you possibly know if there's an infinite number of universes? You see what he has to do? He has to create all these other universes that you don't have any access to, you can't observe directly, right? But his first premise was, 
The only basis to know anything is on what basis? It's empirical, observable, and testable. Well, I don't know how you're going to possibly test that there's another universe, much less an infinite number of other universes. All we have is this one, you see? But the reason Dawkins doesn't like that is because Dawkins said that life is so very, very improbable that he has to have an infinite number of universes to eventually give himself a chance to come come up with a life somewhere. Or you could believe the very simple statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, that one statement right there in Genesis, it rules out atheism. It shows you that God is a personal God. He created the heavens and the earth. He makes man in his image. You see a distinction between God and creation. It's not like Hinduism. It's not like Buddhism, which says that God and the universe are all the same thing. There's a distinction between God and the universe and that the universe had a beginning in time. Isn't that remarkable that that's what science says today? That the universe, in fact, had a beginning in time? Time had a beginning. Just like the Bible said years ago. So, when we see guys like Dawkins, we need to realize that a lot of these guys, all they're doing is taking their scientific credentials and they really do try to bully people around by writing philosophy, very poor philosophy at that, by writing philosophy using their scientific credentials as a basis of it. Now, I've read through this book and parts of it are okay, uh, but I showed you guys just a handful of instances of his own self-contradictions, his own speculations, multiple universes, extraterrestrial life out there. Um, And I want you guys to walk away with the confidence, that I know you already have, with the confidence that when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that we can rely on that because it's something we believe on by faith because of the transformed lives that many of us have experienced, but it's also true by reason. God has given us minds to test and to detect things in nature. And we can detect information and complexity. And like Hugh Ross, the astronomer, said, God has left his fingerprints all over the cosmos. And God has left his fingerprints there for a reason. And that is so that we can have access to that, both with microscopes, with telescopes, and with our own naked eye. That everywhere we look, we can see the beauty and the majesty of God. Amen? That's the goodness of our God.